Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. And today we want to talk a little bit about change. How do people change? How do they change? Why do they change? And why I was going to make a joke about changing clothes, but I couldn't think of anything that was particularly funny. Do you think that there are people who do not change? Well... I think we all change, you know, our molecules change, we're dynamic beings and stuff. But I do think that, okay, so what, you know, depth psychology and biology, evolutionary biology tell us is that, right, who we are is the amount of change we can undergo really drops drastically by about the age of two. Like our personality, our temperament, you know, between nature, nurture, DNA, early developmental stuff. Like, not that we can't change, and not that that's fixed it to, but who we can become, you know, like if 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 before the sperm and the egg come together, there's an almost infinite number of possibilities. Once the sperm and the egg come together, you know, whether or not you're going to be a center for the Knicks or have a shot at being a concert pianist, it's really interesting. Um, my wife, Lindy, just read an article in Psychology Today about this, this pair of twins who, I think they're in Romania, who the one was born like with basically without legs, like I think from the knee down or something. And the father was so competitive, he gave her, he put her in an orphanage. She was adopted. Had another daughter um, became uh, a gymnast. I mean, if she was but born the, with legs, the twin, yeah, or yeah. were they twins actually? Or well, you just said they were twins, or were they twins? Or, or they might have just been a next. I'm trying okay. to think if they were, but they were sisters. They were sisters, not twins, but they were sisters. So a couple of years later, the sister is born with legs. She becomes a, like an Olympic gymnast. Mm -hmm. The sister without the legs also was an accomplished gymnast without legs. That they both just had the. But actually, it's funny that the one without the legs was a lot healthier because she wasn't raised with this competitive jerk dad. The one with the legs right. had all sorts right. of insecurities about her performance and stuff. So they were both, and they met actually. But so on that level, nature, nurture. But I think I, the question is like, do we, we all have things about ourselves, right? That frustrate us or, th or goals we'd want to attain. Things that, okay, maybe I'm never going to be, I'm, I'm five foot eight, you know, maybe I'm never going to be, a professional basketball player, or even at this point, a decent pickup basketball player. But I probably could run a marathon if I wanted to. You know, I've thought about it. I've done 10 milers, but you know, if there's, it's probably in me. So 
within the range of possibilities for what we'd want or what we'd hope for, like, how do we get from point A to point B? Yeah, I know, like, when I was one year, so when I was one, you know, I was in a gang in the nursery, but by the time I was a toddler, I kind of straightened my life out and I quit smoking. And Did your parents get you out of that bad nursery school? It was, guy out, of, it was well, they got I mean, you out of the daycare. That we was... moved from impoverished Appalachia, and so I had better chances as a toddler. I like that. Well, I, I think, um, although, you know, we do know that behavior changes metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, in some levels, we can, we do rewire ourselves. And, yeah. and, uh, so there seems to be, it's kind of paradoxical. One level, I mean, <laughs> you know, we didn't start out to do this, but we, we ended up at the nature nurture argument and, uh, yeah. or the observations. But <clears throat> as people of faith, in some levels, our whole, our whole business, our whole credo, our whole philosophy is, in some levels, at heart, not, not on some levels, at the heart is that we believe people can change. Yeah, that there is transformation that happens and that that, that really is an occurrence. I, so here's my philosophy of life. If Nietzsche and Augustine agree on anything, it has to be true. And I think like if I want to get to know you, I can ask what you think on a wide range of topics. But if I really, if I know what you want, I, I then know a lot about you. Like my, I, my love is my gravity. Yes, absolutely. Our desires, our passions, like what our will, our heart is inclined to, I think. Now, it's funny. Is it in the, the Big Chill where Jeff Goldblum says that human beings can get through a day without food or without sex, but we can't get through the day without a good rationalization. Rationalization, that is in the Big Chill. Yeah, because because what we want, like even if it's it seems illogical or even though it may offend our ethical sensibilities or our you know, the, the sort of priorities we know we have, our mind catches up to the will. It's not like the mind gives the heart orders, like, all right, here's what you're going to want today. It's the other way around. I mean, the heart, the will drives us, and then the mind's catching up. Okay, we can make a plan for that. Let me get a spreadsheet to analyze that, and we can, we can make this happen. But, well, but isn't, for instance, the whole ascetic tradition, in some levels, what they call spirit controlling, or, you know, spirit controlling the flesh, isn't that in reality the mind overriding the will or it's making a decision that for instance <clears throat> i could turn these stones into bread there's yeah. no there's no there's no commandment against doing that all right but i choose not to even though i'm hungry i make a my mind my my mind decides that i'm going to decide not to do that i have a higher there's a higher ideal that i choose to to be by now, is that, a, is that an act of the intellect or is that an act of the will? It's certainly an act of the will. I choose not to turn the stones into bread, but I do that because of a higher principle I live by. I think generally the principles will have to be around affection. So what happens, I think, is not is that... Uh, so there's this guy, Chalmers, uh, who was, a, I think, 18th century Scottish clergyman and moral philosopher, but he gave this talk on how to replace a bad affection with a better one. Basically, his analogy, it's, it's, I'm, I'm colloquializing it, but like if I said to you, Bill, I have this AK-47 and I'm going to empty the clip on you unless you go burn all your valuables in your backyard. You do it to save your life, but you 
resent me, the experience and everything, but you do it. But if I said, Bill, I've got $10 million here. If you can burn all your valuables in 30 minutes, hang on, flame on. <laughs> because <laughs> at that point, like the desire for the, for, for this valuable thing would sort of eclipse the other, the, the, well, really my stuff's worth, not even the sentimental stuff I could probably part with at this, you know? So I think that on one level, when we're, when we want to change, we have to like reorient what we want. We have to learn to love something new if it's going to last. Otherwise, this is why diets don't work, right? Like, because if you love lasagna and Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but you want to look good for to fit into the bridesmaid's dress or something, or because you're going on vacation with your girlfriend or whatever, and you know you're going to be beach pictures or something, you know. You're going to eat even more after the six weeks you 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 restrain yourself because it's the 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 sheer you know longing for that thing which you want so much but you're denying yourself that's going to give way and create like over desire for it. Well, yeah, I mean John Henry Newman. I I think it was John Henry Newman, and I think it's in Eckhart as well. Was the trouble is if you ask God help me to stop sinning, the first thing you need to ask is help me. Not to one. Right, to right, say. right. In other words, you know, so whether, you know, instead of help me to stop smoking, um, help me to, to overcome the desire. Lord, c- command what you will and give me the grace to will what you command. Uh, but later. <laughs> but, later right, but not quite yet. <laughs> We're playing with Brother Augustine. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I get that. In other words, there's a sense where um, when we deny ourselves something, it becomes, it becomes all the greater. I remember uh, I, I went to... Um, I went to this Bible fundamentalist. I used to call it Bible, you know, Bible concentration camp when I was a kid. And uh, we were, uh, I was a young adolescent. So I was probably 14. And I was sitting beside this older teenager who was, his girlfriend had made him come to this thing. And uh, he stood out because his hair was really long. And that was, uh, that was probably next to idolatry, long hair was probably the worst thing you could do at this place. Anyway, they were. Was t- it really next idolatry? Because I think that long hair would have probably been the first thing I would have noticed. <laughs> anyway, um, we had a speaker telling us uh, all the perils of premarital sex, and I mean, this was they were going into details, and this person didn't believe in premarital holding hands. I think this was you know that we, and the guy next to me, he he leans over and whispers to me and says. Man, sex must be awesome because they're really working hard to keep us from it. Yeah, right, 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 right. (laughs) That's the version of the thought. Like, sex is something filthy and dirty that you should save for the one you love. (laughs) Well, it's true. You know, I went to a Christian college for just one semester. That's all I I could last. You washed out. (laughs) I didn't wash out, but I escaped. Uh, And there were some wonderful things about it. It was really kind of strict. But... uh, And the guys weren't allowed in girls' dorms. At least you... Well, you weren't allowed. We could sometimes get there but um and they did but they did a halloween thing which you know is so hilarious and that one halloween the girls could come and trick-or-treat in the guys dorms all right and 90 percent of the girls at this conservative christian college dressed up like prostitutes oh yeah <laughs> so it was this kind of you know it was uh it's you know the, well we're talking repression now but isn't re- repression heightens everything yeah, absolutely. If you see a sign that says "Don't walk on the grass," you you might have not even noticed the grass, but all of a sudden you want to walk. It's just something about the human condition. I think that restraint does. I mean, like like repression rather does sort of heighten the the, the desire. Right. That's why you know 
God's new at his job in Genesis 2 when he tells, whatever you do, don't eat from that. Right, right, yeah, right, exactly, exactly, exactly. Like what kind of, these parenting classes. That's right. You know, it's interesting. There's this hymn called an old, I think it's an 18th century hymn, but called Love Constrains to Obedience. And the chorus is, uh, to hear, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty to choice. And I think that, that and it's, a, it's actually a very moving hymn and very, and very psychologically insightful, as lots of the old hymns were. But the premise is that when you, that, that one-way love, unconditional, no-strings-attached kind of love Especially when we know we're uh, we're we're farthest from deserving it, it's like the Les Misérables. It's the whole thread yeah. of Les Misérables that that actually liberates us to our best self. Mm. And yeah. generally, the the kind of religious repression that happens at the Christian concentration camp usually will like throw fuel on the fire of our shadow self. Hmm. You know, like it, it, you might not be able to let it get out in the concentration camp, but then you'll run to the woods the second, you know, second, or, or whatever the proverbial woods are. Right. Well, that seems to be, I mean, that's kind of what Romans 7, that's at least one take on Romans 7, you know, that which I would not, that do I do. Uh, Paul's kind of whatever he's doing there, you know, that seems to be one take on that. You know, one of the things is I, I read, for instance, I, I've just been rereading Exodus and. I really do believe that <clears throat> that God doesn't give up on the initial plan in in Genesis one. Okay, the garden mm-hmm. doesn't work, but He's constantly trying to get us back to the garden, one way or the other. And it's it's you know we we talk about the the deliverance of Israel from slavery to the other side of the Reed Sea or Red Sea, whichever it was, um, and that God was their warrior. But th- they they really all had really had really changed was their circumstance. Yeah, and I think you know it took a. Uh, I mean, in some levels, the wilderness experience is kind of a lesson. In even though God gives them a new situation, He calls them to a new land. He gives them a new identity. You are going to be a nation of priests. He gives them a new way of living among themselves in the law. Uh, the biblical narrative works it out that it took them a generation. To get to the point where they could kind of receive those gifts, and I think so that is a biblical story of the, how difficult it really is to change, and and particularly when you are going from bondage to freedom, and then, which is another analogy. It, it, in the unconditional love of God, we're given freedom uh, in the baptismal vows. You know, we yeah. renounce all those all the things that would put you in bondage. You know, whether whatever mythology you want to use about it, everything that all the powers of nature within us and without us that would put us in bondage, as Christians, we believe we're set free from that and we renounce it in baptism. But we all know that that's, it's a long obedience in the same direction uh, and that it, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, and that's where I think there is, a, I mean, the fuel for the journey of spiritual pilgrimage i think on some level is is aesthetic 
right? Like David Hume, you know, thought, I mean, in his, some of his thoughts on ethics, I mean, he, he thinks we're formed by sentiment, you know, because we're very, I mean, this is what the British, I think, Enlightenment thinkers knew better than the French Enlightenment thinkers. I mean, they, they, they knew you couldn't just kind of rebuild human nature from the right. ground up, that you, you have to take things like tradition and sentiment and psychology right. seriously. Yeah, so, I mean, Hume's going to say, if you want to teach people about the plight of indigenous Americans, don't give them this ethical diatribe. Show them dances with wolves. You know, like it's, it's you, you, so I think that on one level, it, it, what I feel like so often, especially in religious sorts of communities, but whatever you're trying to change, whether it's just, you know, you're trying to be a, a better friend or a better parent or a better lover, that the self-help diatribe isn't usually, I think, the thing that will propel us in that direction. It's the beauty of that pursuit. It's it's the beauty of 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 the good life with your lover. It's the beauty of, of and the wildness of domesticity and family that like the vision of the beauty of yeah. that that ultimately I think propels us in a direction where where we where where the what we want and what we ought line up. Yeah, you know, it's, I think that's absolutely right. I love the movie Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> it's a great movie and the father is is the biggest loser in the world and he goes around trying to give self-help give motivational talks yeah motivational talks and he couldn't see what was around him yeah the thing that was worth that was worth loving and worth embracing and i i think you're absolutely right um i mean you can you can motivate people by creating fictions i mm-hmm. mean it and i think uh an awful lot of it happens in uh pop psychology and self-help uh in some levels, uh, whole civilizations have been moved because of motivational fictions, you know, um, and a lot of tragedies happened in human history because we wanted to believe in something. Uh, we wanted an easy answer. We wanted to believe better about ourselves and worse about other people. But I do think, you know, it brings us back to what the ancient Greeks knew, that uh, the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of good um, it does raise us. I mean, I think there's a sense where we, if we we love higher things, if we love things that that stretch us, if we love things that take us beyond ourselves, um, then I, I think that truly is a way to change. I mean, I've seen it again and again. It's not true all the time because there's a lot of bad parents out there. But I've seen people having a child transforms them. It, it's, it is a powerful thing to see that happen and um and part of it is that you there's something beautiful there's something transcendent and and you have to lose yourself um <laughs> you suddenly are not the center of the world anymore yeah and i like the way you phrased it because it's they raise us like it, it's we're it's almost we're passive in it to some degree when yes. it really i mean there's a great book uh by von balthasar who's a catholic 20th century thinker called love alone is credible and He's trying to explain in a very short book why the Christian faith makes sense. And he says, basically, it's got its own interior logic that at the heart is the beauty of suffering love. Yeah. But he yeah. says, you know, the only analogy, he said imperfect. He said the only analogy for what it's like when the love of God is revealed to you in the cross of Christ is that is, is that of beauty and love. He says, like, you can't control what you find beautiful. It's like that line Richard Gere says to 
Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. Like, right. If you, opera, but yeah. people that see the opera, you'll, you either love it or you don't. And if you don't, you might be able to have some appreciation, but you'll never really enjoy right. it. Because you can't control it when, when a song comes on and you just, you, you it just takes your imagination over. And that what what is beautiful, you begin to love. And also who you love becomes becomes more beautiful to you there's a, it's interesting yes yeah that you you the person you fall in love with they look especially you they, before you fall in love with them they might have they'll actually look different i mean right. you begin to be and that's the thing what we find beautiful we love and who we love we find more beautiful and i think that we're raised as you said to levels of 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 a better life through the, through that kind of experience. Yes. So why why is it so hard for us to change, given all of that? I mean, given what we've talked about here is the heart of, of faith, uh, uh, even the heart of what it means to be an alive person, a person who loves life and loves the good gifts of this creation. You don't even have to be a person of faith if you to love beauty and to be changed by it. So why, given all of this, given the power of this, why... Why has change so hard? Why do so many of us as Christians struggle just to take a step forward to be better people? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. We've done a couple of podcasts. Recently, our last one was on weakness, our, our, our struggle with weakness. And it connected to one we did about vulnerability. And I think it's very difficult because on one level, when we think about, just think about, a few of the best experiences you've had interpersonally over the past year or two. I guarantee there was some vulnerability involved, some letting the guard down, some trusting, some risk-taking. And yet it doesn't get easier sometimes. Like even though you, all right, that worked. I, I, I let my guard down. But what if I get in that situation the next time and I get whacked or if I get shamed or if I get refused? Right. And I think that part of being living into our best selves involves living in vulnerable community. I mean, the love of God, the the, the divine, whatever your religious tradition, whatever you call it, it's it's usually expressed very concretely through other people. Yeah, and maybe the other thing too, it's kind of like manna. You know, you can't you need you need to go for it every day. Yeah, you know, because you, you we can't uh, uh, we can't hold on to yesterday's triumph. Yeah, it, it's new, new morning by morning, new mercies we see. Yeah, I sometimes think, you know, I, I don't know if, if maybe it's a guy thing or maybe it's just me. But when people say, well, Bill, what do you really want? I have trouble with that question frequently. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was uh, remembering something that um, uh, a professor and a great uh, theologian presence at Princeton Theological Seminary, Diogenes Allen of, of Blessed Memory, I remember him one time saying, what can satisfy a soul if God is not enough? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe there's a sense where, um, you know, again, we're circling back to Augustine's, but maybe the restlessness within us, as Augustine talked about, our hearts are restless till they find their home in God. Maybe the same thing is true about our ability to change. We can't really totally transform or be the people that we were meant to be until we actually find our home in the highest love, the greatest beauty, um, something that that loves us back in a way that is transforming. Yeah, it's funny because I think 
we when we think of change and transformation and journey, we think of active sorts of verbs. But really, I think the key to the good life is actually a kind of passivity in that it's it's more about yeah. You know, they say it's the old adage is great, right? It's better to give than to receive. It's great. It's just not true. Right. <laughs> and like, because actually the most generosity comes, I think, real generosity from people that have been real receivers. Well, it's not true, certainly in the realm of the spirit and probably the realm of the psychological as well. You know, I, I love the George Herbert poem, Love Three, you know, where love bid me welcome. Hmm. And the idea, it's this analogy where love invites love as God, and but love bids me welcome to this banquet. And the author keeps saying, I, I'm not worthy to be here. And so once the person comes in or is in, well, then I will serve. Um, and the love says, no, I will serve thee. And so the ultimately, the, the, you, the, you finally surrender. And I think that's it. I think in some levels, maybe to truly change is to give up the struggle of change. And, and sit down and eat at love itself, and then begin to be transformed from the inside out. Yes, and then I think the desire of our heart, or the or, you know, becomes our heart's desire. Yeah. Amen. I took my love and I took it down. I climbed a mountain and I turned around. Well, the land.